To go be an entrepreneur, to go to go start something, requires an incredible amount of curiosity, conviction, belief, motivation, because that person is doing something that 99 out of 100 people are not going to do. They might they might dream, they might have aspirations, but that entrepreneur is actually gone for it or is going for it. At the same time, that's blinding because it leads you where you can be overconfident in what you're doing. I'm Jody Shapiro, co-founder and CEO of Productive. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Jody Shapiro created the data-driven way for you to manage your SaaS portfolio. All this and more on Code Story. Jody Shapiro was fortunate enough to know he was going to be an engineer from a young age. He did the typical kid things like played with Legos, built things, with deep curiosity around how things worked. He was introduced to coding when he was nine years old and it clicked. He also found himself interested in the business world. The same curiosity around gears and levers was also extended into business, and he was fascinated by the systems in place that enabled intelligent decisions around pricing, stocking, etc. He's had the opportunity to indulge his curiosities studying computer engineering in his undergrad and working on incredible problems in the industry. He's worked for Microsoft, Silicon Graphics, and Google for nine years. He finds it's easy to fall in love with tech, but it's important to remember that there are users on the other side of solutions. When he left Google, he set out to build a business. He wasn't sure what type of business he was going to build but he wanted to go work on a big problem, one that everyone had. And after spending some time researching, he figured out that everyone has more SaaS than ever before, and companies are having a hard time managing their portfolios. He thought there must be a better way to solve this problem and solve it driven by data. This is the creation story of Productive. People sometimes ask me the question, um, did you leave Google to go start Productive? And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context even. The most recent thing I was doing at Google was leading Google Analytics and played a huge role in uh, Google Analytics itself is a tremendously uh, uh, successful product. About 70% of all websites run Google Analytics. Uh, people talk about big data. You kind of have to, you have to think about that. What does it mean when 70% of all websites are using your product? And spent some time building the Google Analytics enterprise business really focused on you know the, the the free Google Analytics product doing really well servicing you know everybody from an individual blogger to small businesses to medium-sized businesses the enterprise business being focused on and the high end of the market being sold to CMOs of you know the biggest you know the biggest companies that are out there it was an amazing experience it was an amazing uh, part of my career and so the question then come back to it sometimes people ask is did you leave Google to come start productive and the answer to that is actually no I left Google to go start a company, but I wasn't sure which company. And part of my thought process was, I really, really wanted to step back and say, this is another one of those significant career transition times. I wanted to go work on a big problem. I wanted to go work on a, uh, a problem that you know, everybody had 
more people are going to wind up having a problem worth solving. And it took some time and really explored, wound up talking to CIOs and CFOs and CTOs. And what I found was, was really, really interesting. And this was, this was kind of the kernel for the idea of productive was consistent feedback from everybody I talked to. And it's even more true now than it was, you know, it was four years ago when, when starting on the idea. Everybody has more SaaS than they've ever had before. It's happening in, in a few different ways. One, just the spend on SaaS growing larger and larger. So even where we sit today, it's projected to reach $140 billion per year in 2022. And SaaS and cloud services making up just over 14% of the total uh, global enterprise IT spending market. Two, the number of applications that all these companies have is growing, it's larger and larger and larger. And three, more and more of the SaaS is being purchased outside of IT. It's within the business units. People are buying stuff from the marketing team, the engineering team, the sales team. They're buying stuff on purchase orders that are being cut. They're buying stuff on credit cards. You've got free products being adopted. And so it was truly this explosion of SaaS. And I thought that was really, really interesting. One, that this was, you know, the, the acceleration was clearly kicking in, clearly happening. Two, the ways that all these organizations were trying to still wrap their heads around it. And again, talking to the CIOs and really, really trying to understand and, and, and validate what is the big pain point? What are the problems that you know, are not being solved well or used to be solved that are, no, that are being unsolved and need to be resolved? And CIO after CIO would talk about this. It's really hard to understand what are we spending money on? It's hard to understand what do we have in the portfolio? It's hard to understand who bought what? What does it do? Why do we need it? We have seven project management applications in the company and somebody wants to introduce, introduce an eighth. Should we? And the questions that they were getting asked are really good questions. The CFO asking questions about why are we spending more money in total? Why are we spending more money with vendors? And they were really, really stuck trying to answer all these questions manually. Data gathering, running a survey, let's fill, you know, get everybody to start filling the spreadsheet. And I looked at this and I said, gosh, this seems like a huge, huge problem that, again, everybody has. There's nobody who's going in the reverse direction saying, I intend to have less SaaS than, than before, but it was so hard for them to, again, wrap their heads around to be able to answer these questions. And so it was consuming more and more energies, just trying to operate the IT side of things and unable at the same time to really answer a lot of the strategic questions. Why do we have all this? How do we think about business value being delivered? How do I think about extracting the most value from it? The forward-looking folks are, are thinking about it in a way that says, shadow IT is not a bad thing. It's actually innovation happening in my company. People in business units are going and finding interesting tools that we should be adopting. But again, like, should we buy that? Should we deploy it? Should we double down on it? Totally operating without data. And that was kind of the key, key insight for me where I was coming from the Google Analytics world where every CMO is using data, is using measurement, is using analytics, insights, workflows to really change the role that marketing has in these organizations, to up-level marketing, to be more and more strategic because they're empowered by data. It's like there's an ever-increasing need now for that on the IT side for these CIOs. SaaS wound up being the accelerant in a very good way to say, there's an opportunity for us to think even bigger. And that was for me really, really the motivation behind starting Productive.
So tell me about the MVP. How long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life? I think there's actually a number of pieces here that, that are very, very interesting to dig into. So one, I think MVP as an acronym is, uh, has multiple, can, can have multiple definitions. I think it's also very, very frequently uh, misused. The mentality that I have, the way that, the way that I think about it, um, the way that my team thinks about it, is this is not about minimal in the sense of like, how do I build the smallest thing? It's actually much, much more so on the V part, and it's not about even the viability. It's the valuable aspect. So the way that I think about things, the way that we thought about things in terms of, of building an initial product was to come back and say, look, instead of guessing what could be valuable, instead of throwing darts at the wall, let's go try to really understand the problem. What is the, what is the problem that people have? Because if you understand that, it, and, it's, and it's actually a hard question to answer, especially for a new space, because they can't necessarily tell you exactly, they may, they may be able to tell you what they want, but sometimes it's a lot harder for them to articulate what is the problem. But as you start to dial in on specific problems, well, now you can start building solutions. And the goal is, how do I get to a valuable solution as quickly as I can, as resourcefully as I can? Don't want to spend two years kind of a thing. I want to be able to learn quickly. It's one of the things I talk about a lot with, with my team in our conversations is learning ROI. How do we learn as quickly as we can? So when we took the, the approach from an MVP, we said, look, we have a pretty big vision. We have a pretty big perspective of where we think things are going to go, but you can't get to the later innings if you don't solve the early innings. So let's go truly try to understand. And we literally just started, you know, started from there. I think an important element as well is you can't build products in a vacuum. It doesn't work to go to go bury yourself and code away and build all kinds of amazing and then bring it out to the world. So we wound up leveraging very, very heavily design partners from the get-go. And this is important too. Design partners meaning people that we thought were ultimately going to be our customers, meaning they represented the kind of people that we eventually aspired to, to sell to, to provide products to, because they can actually represent. Our focus is on enterprise. These are, these are big companies, thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands, some of our uh, uh, larger companies out there, hundreds of thousands of people. The environments, the, the requirements from a security standpoint, from a scalability standpoint, from a, uh, 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 a breadth standpoint, from a complexity standpoint, are fundamentally different than that of, say, a 200-person company, right? So many, so many things are different. The product you would build, the requirements, the ways you have to think about it. So we wound up going again, early with those design partners and saying, let's really try to understand what do those problems look like in this space, in those domain. Let's design and build for that from the get-go. Let's validate early. And it requires it's a two-way relationship, right? It requires the person on the other side of the table to say, I'm willing to place trust that you're going to you're going to build the thing that I really need, and I have the patience with you, and I'm willing to extend some credibility, and we're going to build this thing together. And that wound up just being absolutely critical um, for us with those early customers, just iterating towards delivering value. Doesn't mean you get it right every time, 
you're going to get some things wrong and that's okay. Like you learn from it and you rev because there's always going to be a hidden requirement as a constraint or a, oh, that's interesting. But what if we did this larger thing? That feedback loop is the really, really critical thing that factored into our approach. That makes sense. You know, it's interesting about the, the feedback loop and I'm, I'm curious how you took that um, and, and progressed the product and built your roadmap. I'm curious how you decided through your process, what was the next most important thing to build after you know, the MVP? I think a lot of this is the very, very heart of, um, uh, of, of product building. And I'm gonna say product management, but I don't, I don't mean product management in the uh, job description form. I'm saying in the construct of building a product, I think you have to have a perspective that says, I can see long-term, so I, I, I understand the customer deeply enough. I understand the pain points deeply enough. In fact, so much so that I can articulate it on behalf of the customer without them being here. I understand the larger market dynamics. So like, where do I think things are going? Um, is this gonna be a long-term pain point, a temporary pain point? So a very long-term view on where do I think the puck is going, or the pucks? Because this is this is a this is a, a multi-dimensional kind of a problem. What do I anticipate in terms of customers, customer needs, um, uh, the market, basically maturity? What do I think that looks like? And then work it backwards. So one of our values at the company is plan to win big, meaning where do we think the market's going to evolve to? How do we think about that? And then again, work it backwards. Okay. That might be where we think things are going to be five years from now. That's super interesting. But people don't buy products for five years from now. They buy products for today. So what are the near-term versions of those pain points? What is the, you know, what is the, 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 the most important thing for them to have solved? And you just go dig in with them. And I sort of think of it as a, you have your strategy, you have your roadmap, but it's all subject to change. And why would it change? because you're getting that feedback. So a rapid iteration process of like, listen, understand, build, test, listen, iterate, build, iterate. And there's a, there's a humility that you have to bring to this, which is I have an idea, I have a perspective, but we don't know that it's right yet. It could be completely wrong. And it requires that intellectual curiosity, but also intellectual honesty to say, we might be wrong on a whole bunch of stuff. And again, that's okay, but we need to figure that out as quickly as we can. And the way we do that is just staying super close to the customer and large amounts of customer empathy. And that's really, really factored into how we think about roadmap, how we pull some things in, how we push some things out to say, actually, we got to go double down. There's a, there's a whole use case here that's far bigger than we thought it was. But at the end of the day, if you're creating customer value, when one other one of our, our values as a company is earn customer love, if you really are doing that, it's a good conversation. They're gonna, you're going to wind up with your customers guiding the roadmap to what makes sense that balances strategy, opportunity, and customer needs. Well, let's switch to team. So, so how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? So this starts at the at the founding level, and really the way I think about this is getting the very very foundations of the company right is ultimately the foundation of everything you're going to wind up building on top of it. So 
for me, it meant making sure, not just on what product do I want to build, what direction, what, which problem space do I want to go tackle, but a really big key to the success is like, do you have the right co-founders? Are they compatible enough with you where you, you can go um, work well together? Are they complementary enough to you that they're, they're bringing additional perspective skills to the table? Is the chemistry strong across, uh, across you such that you can, again, push, challenge, and whether you have one co-founder, in my case, I have two co-founders, that you wind up being multiplicative together versus additive together. It starts there. And it's really, really um, worth spending time on. As an investor, there's always good questions of like, well, how do you guys, you know, how do you guys know each other? Um, you know, uh, she and I work together in this context. He and I know each other from there. Those fundamentals are what everything is based on. So in my case, I mentioned I have two co-founders. Ashish is my CTO co-founder, phenomenal, phenomenal engineering executive, uh, engineering leader, uh, many years at Microsoft, uh, years at eBay, he was at Amazon, really, really building large-scale, complicated, powerful, uh, data-centric products. My other co-founder is Manish, uh, also an engineer as it turns out. He's really spent his career in the business side, Bain doing consulting, a variety of things. He was at LinkedIn most recently, really, really focused on just scaling revenue growth. And so it starts there with having a really good kernel of that leadership team. The second thing we uh, should say, the first thing is start the company, right? Before we hired anybody though, we sat down and spent a lot of time on what do we want our culture to be? What do we want our values to be? Because it factors into hiring. It factors into which types of folks are we looking to hire? Um, how do we, again, think about this long-term? Where do we want to be? Not just when we're 100 people or 500 people, but 1,000 people, 5,000 people. This is getting you know, the steel of the building in place beyond just the, the concrete foundation and the, and the bedrock that you're building on top of. So we spent a lot of time on culture and values. Um, they're all, by the way, listed on, uh, on our website at productive.com, where we went through every one of those words and like really had some good intellectual debate and conversation about what did we want our company to be? Because we're all coming from, you know, I'm bringing great experiences from Google, great, you know, great culture experiences at LinkedIn, Amazon, all these companies. This was the point where like we were really solidifying. Um, then it becomes a question of, okay, so we got to make sure that we have, you know, yes, engineers and we need to hire for design and we eventually hire for sales and marketing. But when you know the culture to start off with, it becomes a lot easier because you can really start to figure out who do you want in the company? Who do you need? What does success look like? Um, we're big, big believers in diversity, inclusion. There was something from the very, very beginning uh, we invested in it's still something very important today. I think you get the best ideas from different perspectives, um, meaning different companies you've worked at, different backgrounds, different um, experiences, uh, all of the elements there. That's where you get not you get the opposite of groupthink. You get that creativity. So we again cared a lot about this, thought about it. I remember one of our early board meetings. We were um, I have to think for a second. Now. We were probably five months into the into the company 
And we had a slide in the board meeting that showed the recruiting funnel of how many people have we you know, talked with and how many people have gone to, um, uh, this, is, this is pre-pandemic, how many people have gone to you know, on-site interviews, how many people have gone to an offer stage, how many people have actually been and hired. And the bottom, the bottom of the funnel, um, I think was something like eight people had been hired at that point. And the top of the funnel was over a thousand people that we had talked to in the recruiting process. And Steve Laughlin is our board member from Excel, uh, an incredible uh, investor, board member, entrepreneur himself. And uh, and he and he uh, he cracked a, a a joke, but it was a but it was insightful one. He's like, "Are you guys running a recruiting agency?" Or are you building a team? How can you have talked to this many people and you've only wound up deciding that, that you know, eight of them are the ones you should hire? And it came down to, look, we would have loved to have hired more of them, but we are just being very, very intentional about, it's not just, are you smart? It's not just, you know, are you driven? It's not just, uh, do you have creative ideas? It's not just, do you take ownership? It was this question of, we are putting together a team and, we need people who are amazing skills-wise. We need people who are amazing chemistry-wise. We need to like really, really think about this because again, we're building you know the first floors of this of this massive thing we're going to do together, and it just takes that intentionality. And by the way, the hardest thing is when you're is when you're um, have somebody who's like, I think that you're amazing, but I don't think that I don't think the I don't think it makes sense for us to work together at this time. To be willing to to be willing to um, to say no, but I always I always go back to caring about the person, and I say to people, even folks that don't join us, I want you to be successful. If there's anything I can do to help you be successful, you can count on me, and I have helped a lot of people. Um, just because it may not be the right time for us to work together, but everybody's on their journey. You just invest in people, and you wind up building a great company. You wind up building a great community, um, but it requires that intentionality. Well, let's flip to scalability a bit. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? So one of the benefits of founding team, because all three of us have built massive, massive businesses before from those earliest days into hundreds and hundreds of millions in, in annual revenue. Um, we've all worked on Again, massive products in terms of just number of people using them, um, solving like not a niche market need, but a large market need. And there's a lot of good lessons that, that you learn in the process of doing this. In my case, uh, you know, Google experiences, but Ashish's case, building things at Amazon and Microsoft and eBay. One of the things that you learn when you have these opportunities to, to truly work on global scale problems, to work on industry scale problems, is that you eventually things have to scale. Um, meaning you sort of have to think about things from that standpoint of, I don't have a billion users on the platform today, but I know that I intend to eventually. It doesn't mean that again, that I have to support a billion users today, but the design decisions that go into things to say, let us be smart about the decisions we make, but let us not be short-sighted in terms of building things you know, that hack and don't scale. Because if you've worked on a product where you get to that inflection point, things start to take off, there's only so much um, you can do real-time 
to try to fix all the things that are breaking. You really have to have come at it from the beginning to say, when these parts of the system need to scale, when these parts of the businesses need to scale, I will be ready versus being completely caught off guard and being reactive to it. And so um, we did build the company in a way that says things will scale. Um, it factors into everything from an art, you know, engineering architecture standpoint to how we think about, you know, the revenue side of the company, to how we think about just everything to saying, I know that everything is going to have to get not 10x bigger, you know, but 100x, 1000x bigger. Let's make sure that we haven't put unnecessary speed development constraints in our way. And when we get there, we're ready to we're ready to go up and go big. It's worked out. It's worked out really well for us. We've continued to just bring on more and more customers. Um, I give you a sense of, of 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 what I even mean from a from a technical side of things. We're literally bringing in billions and billions of data points in real time, streaming into our systems. That data is incredibly quickly processed. It goes back into a variety of of use cases for you know analysis for automation. Every time we bring on another big another big customer, you need to have that confidence that says it's not going to break the system, because if you're again if you're doing things right, you're going to keep adding more and more load. Like you want to be in a mode where your sales team says, "I don't have to worry about can the product support all the growth that I'm bringing." You've got to be able to you've got to be able to have that internal trust, um, and we have, and so. Uh, we've continued to, you know, re-architect parts of the system. We've continued to reinvest in things, but we have never been in a situation where the system doesn't scale because we built it knowing what was ahead and where the likely friction points would be. Again, just based on all the various experiences previously. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with Productive, what are you most proud of? Proud of a number of things. One aspect is. I think it's really important. No matter no matter what you're doing, this goes for for you know for you. This goes for me. This goes for all the folks listening. At the end of the day, at the end of the week, do you wind up looking back and feeling good? I'm making good use of my time. I'm making positive impact in whatever it is that I'm spending my energies on. And one of the things that matters a lot to me. Is that I'm having positive impact in the world. If you're working on a, a consumer product, that's awesome. You're doing a lot of you're, you should be doing a lot of good things in terms of bringing you know, uh, joy to consumers. In my world, B2B enterprise software, it's easy to, to always think about you know logos and customers and you know, deal sizes and these kinds of things. But what really matters is there's still people who are using your product. There's still people who are benefiting from the fact that you are solving a problem for them at work versus on their weekend. So I'm proud of the fact that we've really, really, when I say earn customer love, I don't mean that just in a can your will your customers you know give you a testimonial or or uh, or say nice things, but really like you have impacted that person's. Work life, and it doesn't matter that they're a CIO or they're the VP or a director or an individual contributor. In our case, IT is the primary uh, buyer and user for us, but the finance people, procurement people, legal, security—if you're impacting large numbers of people's work 
you're helping them get their work done better. You're helping them get done faster. You're helping them be a hero in their organization where they are uh, regarded well, they're respected. You're doing good in the world. So I'm very, very proud of the product we've built, the approach that we've taken to things, um, and that ability to impact all those all those people that are that are our customers. Again, not at the logo level, but at the at the individual person level. And two, the team and the culture that we've built at Productive. As mentioned it earlier, just all those investments into culture, into values, into hiring. Um, Company building is not, not easy beyond just the, are you solving the right problem? There's all kinds of dysfunctions of an organization that will organically creep in. You have to be very, very deliberate about what is the kind of company that I'm building? What is it that I want to be able to look out some number of years in the future and say, that was a great place to work. That was, a, you know, that was one of those places that people would look back on and say, that was the place to be. In fact, the most impactful years of my career we're at Productive. We're on a pretty good trajectory. We have a lot a lot of work ahead of us. I often think of it as we're 1% done, 99% to go. But I'm proud just from where we are today, we're making a difference on our customer side in their lives and we're making a difference in my team's lives. And I'm grateful for that opportunity and I'm proud of the impact we are having. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think a, I think a, a classic one is um, is one of being overconfident and not and not validating enough um, either the pain point or the need or what have you. And this this manifests. There's many there's many examples um, actually throughout my career I can share, but it often starts with um, thinking, oh I I know I know what's needed. And you get very excited and you start building and you start you know, preparing to ship and launch and all those kinds of things. And then you get the feedback loop. The thing that you thought was the best thing ever is not being uh, adopted quite as you thought. And sometimes, yes, you have to be a little bit patient, but I think what's really important is to, is to dig into that and try to understand, okay, um, and it, this again, I think goes back from a culture standpoint. This is not about blame. This is not about who messed up. This is not about who didn't do their job. Presume good, presume that people have good intent. Everyone's doing their best. So we missed something and you just have to go back to it and you dig in and you go talk to the users, you go look at the data and over and over when these kinds of situations happen, you get in there and you say, ah, okay totally didn't understand something that we thought we understood. Well, what if we did it differently? What if we did this? Sometimes you have to go back and just say, that entire thing are just our founding hypotheses were, were, were incorrect. And I think of those not as failures. I think of those as, as, as learning moments. And again, culturally, it winds up being so important that you treat them that way. I would much rather we go try a lot of stuff. Not all of it's going to work. We learn from it. And so for me, the framing is less of a mistake was made and it's more of a, well, what did we learn from that? And guaranteed you wind up with better outcomes when you have that intellectual honesty, when you're willing to have a belief and, and have it be proven wrong, when you're willing to you know, own, they're like, okay, so here we are. Where are we gonna go from here? What are we gonna do about it? 
I find that that leads to really, really constructive uh, conversations and outcomes. You know, we, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, I think it's, I think it's really, it's always that interesting balance of having enough information to make a high quality decision while knowing that you don't have all the information. And so uh, an example here, um, I, I won't go too much into the details because it, it, um, I don't think it'll be terribly illustrative, but you've got a roadmap, you believe we need to go, we need to go do A, B, or C. And sometimes you, you just, you push on too much. And in retrospect, you say, you know what, that part of the, that part of the product um, that we think is, is so obviously correct, turns out to actually be a P2 requirement for your customer because you didn't, you didn't understand the P0. And the do differently, this is again holding myself accountable, holding, you know, holding ourselves accountable, is to say, is there a way, I'll go back to the MVP, is there a way that we could have figured out more quickly what does value look like in the customer's eyes? Are we measuring the right things? Are we asking the right questions? And there's absolutely some things in terms of like how we've been building, uh, building the company. But I just think like with the with the learnings that you have now, you'd go back and say, it's kind of obvious if we had if we had asked a better question, we could have figured that thing out four months sooner. And um, and I think again, all, all, all of us all of us have those opportunities. It requires, again, to start off with, it requires the willingness to say, uh, "We didn't have it. We didn't have it all figured out right." Um, and let's go back and let's go back and revisit. Let's go check our homework. Well, last question, Jody. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? To go be an entrepreneur, to go to go start something requires an incredible amount of curiosity, conviction, belief, motivation, a ton of very very respectable things. Because that person is doing something that 99 out of 100 people are not going to do. They might they might dream, they might have aspirations, but that entrepreneur has actually gone for it, or is going for it. And um, and I think it, it, it again, it's not for everybody. It's really hard, despite all the stuff that we read in the tech press and all the all the vaunting of uh, of of you know incredible um, you know outcomes, companies, whatnot. It's really, really hard work. So I start off with just an appreciation for what this person has embarked on because so many other people didn't do it. And you can guarantee there's people in that person's life that are that have been trying to convince them it's a bad idea. Why are you gonna quit your job for this? Why would you give up this? Why would you, all those kinds of things. And they've got that level of conviction. So that's good. They're going for it. At the same time, that's blinding because it leads you human nature it leads you to a situation where you can be overconfident in what you're doing you can be overconfident that like no, the world needs this thing that i'm doing everybody else is wrong they just don't know it yet 
And you've got to be able to balance some of that with enough of reality that you're not just headstrong going and doing something that actually doesn't, doesn't have a market or people don't have the problem or it's not a big enough market. And so I combine the respect, the encouragement, the enthusiasm with a bit of level-headedness and to say, think like an investor would. So if somebody else had this idea and they were coming to you to invest in it, what would you want to understand? What would you look for? And it winds up being a really good moment of clarity because it forces you out of the emotional state of the thing that I want to go build and do. And when you think like an investor, there's really three big categories that, that are being evaluated. One, the market. Is this a big enough problem? Do enough people have this problem? Um, why now kind of a questions, right? Again, as an investor, you fundamentally have to believe that there's a problem to be solved out there. Because if not, then you shouldn't make the investment. Second area is you've got to believe that of all the different ways to go solve this problem, this is the best solution. This is the best approach. So, you know, in a, in a free market, there are going to be other people who recognize the same market. So you've got to be able to, as an, again, as an investor, pick the winning idea, the best, the best approach to it. And the third, and this is the one that the entrepreneur can control, is the team. Is this the group of people that is going to be able to execute really well, is going to be able to work well together, is going to be able to hire, do all those amazing things to bring the solution that's just described to the market and solve it. And it's important, I think, to step back from all the enthusiasm and excitement and ask these questions. And it's a good framing of if somebody else was doing it, would you invest in it? And if you would be willing to invest in it, how much would you invest? Would you invest $5,000? Would you invest a year's worth of your salary? Would you invest your retirement savings? And it, and I said that not to discourage, but to encourage a little bit of that reality check of, hey, let's make sure that all the things I'm giving up, in fact, the opportunity cost, I could be going and solving a different problem that's even bigger. But you have to be, you have to have that self-awareness. And again, I think a lot of people, a lot of technologists think it's very, very common, um, technical founders, um, an approach that says, I'm really, really excited about this new hammer. And the hammer might be really amazing, but you've got to start with, you got to go find the unmet need. You got to go find the no longer met need. What the market is really asking for is I need to fasten two pieces of wood together. Well, if you know a nail might be a good solution, could be a scenario for a screw, could be a situation for another kind of fastener, but the core need is I need to, these two pieces of wood need to be attached to each other to not move, to not vibrate loose, etc. A hammer may or may not be the right opportunity or the solutions that exist may be good enough, cheap enough, all those kinds of things. Don't fall in love with, I have to go build this hammer and bring it to the market. If you don't fully understand the market need. If you don't, if you haven't thought through, again, the opportunity, if you haven't thought through that strategy, the roadmap, if you haven't thought through, like, who do I need to bring with me on this journey to go do it? But when you get this right, that's where you get transformational products. That's where you get transformational companies and these, these outside successes. That's fantastic. Well, Jody, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Productive. Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. 
Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>